Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds today. We are delighted to have Margaret Humphreys with us from Duke University, and she'll be introduced in just a moment. There are no financial conflicts of interest to disclose with this uh, discussion today. I want to thank our culinary medicine folks for the inaugural uh, breakfast of this season. We had a hiatus over the summer where there was not prepared food, but I hope that you have learned something this morning about the healthy oils and fats, which was the topic of the discussion. This is a program, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, that we inaugurated a year ago in the Department of Medicine to educate ourselves about healthy eating, healthy nutrition, so that we would be able to say something with intelligence to our patients and our peers and our, um, and our home families. So that's going to be ongoing uh, now that the season has started again. I'm going to introduce to you Kathy Kirkland, who will introduce today's speaker. Many of you know Kathy. She's been here for many years in several iterations. Kathy's a full <laughs> professor of medicine. She was in the infectious disease section. She was our hospital epidemiologist and then retooled as a palliative medicine physician, where she is now uh, spending her time. She has also, for our Department of Medicine, been the vice chair for quality and now has begun uh, a new program in medical humanities in our department. And she is the director of the medical humanities program, which you will be hearing more about, and for which we are delighted we have brought uh, Margaret Humphreys as today's speaker. So tell us a little bit about Margaret. <laughs> Thank you, Rich. I hope everyone knows me by now. Um, I'm delighted to introduce Margaret Humphreys today. Uh, she um, will be certain to give us an interesting talk. Um, she's a graduate of the University of Notre Dame in liberal studies. And from there, she moved to Harvard, where she did many um, years of service <laughs> and learning. She earned her master's and her PhD in the history of science. She then went on to get her medical degree at Harvard and did her residency at Brigham and Women's. After that, in the early 90s, she moved to Duke, where she began as an, associate, as an assistant professor of both history and of medicine, and is now a tenured professor of history and of medicine, and the Josiah Charles Trent Professor of the History of Medicine. She has had a long interest in health and public health and medicine in the South. And she's particularly interested in issues um, related to race and health, and in the uh, social determinants and consequences of um, health in the American South. She's written four books, uh, most recently, and great title, Marrow of Tragedy, The Health Crisis of the American Civil War, which was published in 2013. She's written numerous articles in books and journals, many of which relate to her interest in the social determinants of health. And um, numerous book reviews. She's currently the president of the American Association for History and Me of Medicine. She's given numerous named lectures and is active in teaching, especially in the history department at Duke where she teaches a course that I would love to take, History 371, Feast of Famine, Food and Global History. Fits, fits well with our culinary medicine. Um, 
I'm particularly interested in today's talk, Death and Diversity in Civil War Medicine. Um, as some of you know, I'm a child of the South, and there are a few others probably in the audience, and we carry the burden of Southern history <laughs> with us all the time. My own uh, great-great-grandfather was a private at the Battle of Seven Pines in Virginia and had his arm shot off. He survived and went on to become a federal judge in the United States of America after the war was, was won by the right side. So I'm interested to hear Margaret's um, wisdom about death, diversity, and Civil War medicine and what it has to tell us about medicine today. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you, Kathy. It's, it's interesting to me that Kathy should say, I've done all these things in social determinants of health, when I didn't even know the phrase until about a year ago. But once I understood it, I realized that is what I've been doing for much of my career. I am also was very interested in seeing the displays out here and the whole discussion of food, because you'll see food comes into this talk. And the, it certainly was prominent in my discussions with patients when I was practicing internal medicine. So. Um, all of these things somehow fit together. The, in the discussion of the South, I don't know how many of you saw the latest figures about obesity in the United States. I think every state in the country is now at least 20% obese. But this, the fattest states are the southern states uh, with rates 35 40%, Mississippi, Alabama, and North Carolina. Um, and you may also be familiar with the stroke statistics um, in the South, the so-called stroke belt. Um, and North Carolina leads in that as well. And I think one of the reasons this puzzles people is if, if the main risk factor is hypertension, which it is for obviously certain categories of stroke, and we have all these cheap pills that we can, we can knock hypertension down in 10 minutes, why should this persist in being a problem? So it's a recognition of the power we have and the inability to spread it through the population. Well, I want to flip that question today and talk about an era when I imagine most of you think doctors had no power at all, that they had no effective tools. So shouldn't people in the Civil War have died at exactly the same rates, different populations? And I hope by the time we're done, you'll see that the definition of health care and the definition of what doctors could do um, did make a difference, north and south, white and black, um, and perhaps per re recalibrate your idea of what it meant to be a healer um, in this era. I, I do like to talk to, to young, particularly younger doctors, and say, you know, there were no antibiotics before 1945. And for all those millennia, humans survived most infections. So just get over it. There weren't any antibiotics in the Civil War. Let's move on, all right? What did they do, and what did they do that was effective? So that's where I want to start. I, I hope there's lots of time for questions. There may well be things you wanted to hear that I'm not going to talk about today, but I'm glad to talk about in the dis discussion. I'm also, oh wait, that's the pointer. That makes it go forward. So just some beginning statistics. Something like 700,000 Americans died north and south in the Civil War. Two-thirds of those deaths were from disease. Now, the battlefield deaths also revealed disparities, but I'm not going to talk about them here. They're not the focus of this talk. Um, 
I should say I'm someone who puts words on PowerPoint slides. This is not politically correct, but as recent political conversation has pushed us to not be politically correct, I'm unashamed of it. Um, I'm, a, I'm a very visual person. I see words and I remember them. Other people hear words, so I figure I'll do both things. Um, another point, if any of you here are really hot in medical statistics and p-values and tight definitions of things, we'll just put all that aside. Civil War statistics are a mess. We can get trends, we can talk about, you could make all sorts of pretty graphs, but they're really not, the precision of the graph is not worth the imprecision of the data. So while I'm going to give you some stats in the next slide, and I'm going to talk about causes, I'm not gonna give you a 33% of the difference was due to this or that, but rather us in history, we do qualitative methods and we're proud of it. So. Here's the mortality difference that I want to focus on. And it was after the war when medical researchers started putting together all the statistics from the war that they were really puzzled because of this wide difference. So these figures, they're not parallel, I'll admit, the Confederate numbers, CSA, Confederate States of America, 1862 and 63, 167 per thousand men died of disease. So 1.6 in 10 in those two years. White troops for a longer span, 53 per thousand died. So Confederates three times and more. And then the US colored troops, and that's their official designation. The black troops that fought for the Union, 143 per thousand, coming close to the Confederate numbers. Um, and you could, and particularly people have, fret about those time spans being different, and they are different. Everything in the Confederacy, the statistics are bad, and they get worse after 1863. Any, no gathering or talk about Civil War is complete without somebody mentioning the Richmond evacuation fire of 1865 when the, the Confederate government burned its warehouses of munitions, they all exploded, the Confederate government records were burned. So. This is when they gathered the statistics and put them together in 1863. They never did it again. So we don't know what happened, except for maybe individual units <clears throat> in 64, 65. These are the numbers we have. I think they reflect genuine differences, and I want to talk about why and what the doctors had to do with it. Go. Now, so I said at the beginning, you probably think Civil War doctors couldn't do anything or what they did was harmful. So I want to quickly go over the tools they had that by modern standards worked. First and foremost, they didn't have antibiotics, but they had quinine. For all its side effects and unpleasantness, malaria, quinine worked, and it was, malaria was a big disease in the Civil War. Vivax um, heading north, even into Iowa and Minnesota for uh, the antebellum period. <clears throat> And troops brought Vivax back to the Connecticut River Valley, by the way, after the Civil War, and reintroduced it here. Opiates, obviously a value for pain. And anesthetics. There was a, there's a museum in Philadelphia called the Mutter, which is sort of a 19th century cabinet of curiosities museum. I highly recommend it. <clears throat> they did a Civil War medicine exhibit, and they surveyed people. And one of the questions was, did they have anesthesia in the Civil War? 89% of the people going into the exhibit said, no, this is wrong. Most surgeon, surgical treatment in the Civil War was done with anesthesia. So having it, chloroform and ether uh, mattered. 
<clears throat> there was vaccination against smallpox, which the North had better access to than the South. And I have access to a cough drop, just a second. <laughs> they did not have recolas in the Civil War, but it's unfortunate. <clears throat> Upper airway cough syndrome, I wish somebody treat it better. Um, they had surgery, and surgery, as you saw in the, that initial slide, I think the amputation is the icon of Civil War medicine. The reason was <clears throat> Civil War troops were firing a bullet called the mini ball, which had uh, grooving in the sides of it. It spun, but it spun slowly. So it carried into an arm or a leg with that bullet going in, took the dirty, muddy uniform and everything else on the skin with it, if it hit bone, it brought all those lovely germs into the bone, and there was no way the person was going to survive <clears throat> that crushed <clears throat> bone with all that lovely, those lovely germs without amputation. Amputation was an appropriate response if they did it quickly. And you, after 48 hours, they knew it was not, it was probably too late. 75% of the men survived from those major arm and leg amputations. So 25% didn't, but probably none would have without amputation. So good surgery, well done surgery, made a difference. Rapid field evacuation mattered. If you were lying on a field for two days in the sun with no water, you couldn't walk because your femur was fractured, um, you did worse than if somebody got you out of there and quickly tended you. <clears throat> Hygienic hospital care mattered. And by hygienic hospitals, I mean that they had standards of cleanliness. They whitewashed. They uh, took care of stools and getting those away. They were very hot on ventilation. Um, and the mortality rate in Civil War hospitals, I always like to throw this out and ask, but I already put the numbers up there. <clears throat> it's something like only 1% to 10% of patients admitted. Most people got better. And then finally, nutritious food. And <clears throat> this is... Um, perhaps the most important factor, the differential, but I hope to convince you of that. So plan of talk. Analyze these factors in turn, looking for differences among the three groups. And you know, comparing three is difficult, so I apologize. It's hard to balance out all three, but I decided not to do comparing the first two and the second two. Um, I want to start with, were the troops the same when they entered the war? How'd they differ? And then at the end, I'll draw grand conclusions with no statistical validity, so, just deal. Anyway. So, health on enrollment. One of the um, most important issues would be what could be called the childhood diseases. But in adults, they're not childhood diseases, and of course, they're much more deadly. Measles, chicken pox, <clears throat> common diarrheal diseases ran through those camps. People who hadn't had typhoid yet got typhoid. Um, was a time of what they called seasoning. And there's been a study of one New York regiment, how long it took those diseases to run through the regiment, either kill them or they, got, they went home invalided. But at the end of nine months, that regiment was pretty much ready. It had immunological sophistication, if you will, against the diseases of camp. Now, most Civil War soldiers were rural in origin. There were more cities in the North, but the numbers were not enough to make a huge difference. And most of the black troops also were from rural situations. So probably if you try to balance that out, and I've done these little uh, comparison equations occasionally, the white Union troops were better in terms of prior immunology 
exposure than the Confederates and they better than the slaves or the colored troops, many of whom had been slaves. There were environmental effects um, depending on, I mean, we're talking about North and South. Um, the North is different from the South um, environmentally and that, does, that was reflected in the disease environment. The South had more malaria and had more hookworm. Both these diseases in childhood caused growth retardation, chronic anemia, um, and uh, weaker bodies just growing up. I was interested to see in the New England Journal of Medicine a couple of weeks ago, I guess now, that case, if you saw the pregnant woman with the high eosinophilia, and they're trying to figure out which worm she has, and there's a sentence in there that says, we have hookworm in New England. Oh, well, that's interesting, because hookworm really doesn't thrive in soils that get cold in the winter. Um, but in any, any place you have immigrants from Central America, there's hookworm in their bodies. They're going to bring it here. But mostly hookworm was a disease of the South and of sandy soil. And malaria is obviously a disease that favors places where mosquitoes thrive. The general poverty of the South meant that the white men coming in would be more prone to malnutrition. And the poverty of slave life meant even worse malnutrition. Uh, particularly in childhood. So the, again, probably U.S. white is stronger than Confederate, stronger than U.S. colored troops. Um, all right, there we go. Now I want to focus particularly on the black troops for a moment. After the movie Glory came out in 1989, I think many Americans first learned that there were black troops in the Civil War. <clears throat> now that that movie is fading in consciousness. Again, I find people who were surprised that there were black troops in the Civil War. They were about a tenth of the Union Army. Um, and the numbers, the numbers are bad. Numbers are always bad. 189,000, 200,000. But a lot of black men were put in the Union Army. They were often um, ex-slaves. In fact, in Kentucky, Union recruiting um, men, you have to realize that in the states that did not secede, the states that were loyal, slavery was not ended by the Emancipation Proclamation because it was only in states in rebellion. <clears throat> so there was, there was slavery in Maryland, in Kentucky, Missouri, and Union recruiting sergeants would go on the plantations and buy slaves to put them in the Union Army. I mean, they came directly out of slavery. Others escaped uh, from slave plantations, made it to Union lines, were in these so-called contraband camps, were living in the worst possible refugee squalor, um, camps that uh, one historian has found had something like a 25% mortality rate in a year. These were the men that joined the Union Army in St. Louis, for example, um, and some of them arrived in very poor condition, malnourished, sick, wearing rags. Some of this was happening in the winter. They came in unheated railroad cars, three days, no food, um, etc. So probably the black troops were in the worst condition when they enrolled. Um, so again, you get that sort of formula. Um, the other thing to realize is that while the black troops were indeed Union soldiers, they were second-class citizen soldiers from the very beginning. They were paid less, they got, and it's almost a joke, they had bad food and there wasn't enough of it. Um, they, they got issued the tents that other units had turned in because they were worn out. Same thing with clothing. They had firearms that didn't work. Um, just generally there was, there was a weak commitment to the Union 
some people thought it was a great idea to put black men in uniform in the North, but an awful lot of people didn't. And so it got played out in petty ways on local levels. Many of the officers, if you saw Glory, you met Robert Goldshaw, whose uh, bas-relief statue is there on Boston Common, great heroic figure, great commitment sort of to abolition and leading black troops. But most guys who became the officers in the black regiments were there for the increase in pay, the promotion, and the same was true for the doctors that went there. They were the ones who were not good enough to get promotion elsewhere. So the leadership of the black troops was also poor. Um, and then finally, something that, uh, again, a term that I had the concept before I had the term, their social capital was weak. And the idea here, social capital is, is what you fall back on in terms of connections and family and community for help in times of struggle. If you lose your job, does that put you on the street or can you survive with the help of your social capital, your social networks? Um, and black troops could not call on the kind of social capital that white troops could. They were not, they couldn't, they were usually illiterate. They couldn't write home, and they couldn't mobilize support back home. They couldn't get their wife to talk to the mayor, who would call the call, contact the governor. They had none of this power that the, the white troops had if things were going badly in hospitals or in medical care. So this, too, had an important role to play in their numbers, I think. So go. Now, so back to my list. Access to drugs, those drugs that I said were effective. The main problem was the Union blockade. Let me just see if my picture. This cartoon's fairly famous. <clears throat> Winfield Scott's plan to blockade the South, blockade the Southern ports. Um, and uh, as Bob Bonner was talking about dinner last night, it wasn't just things coming in, but it was communication coast to coast. If you wanted, uh, if you're down here in Charleston, you can't just easily send something up to Richmond by boat. And that's the way much of the Southern commerce moved was coastal. And so when you cut that off, um, it becomes a real problem to move food. There was food in North Carolina that rotted because they couldn't get the trains, those trains prioritized to get it into Virginia where the men needed the food. So um, the, the effect of the blockade was complex. But quinine is an imported drug. Opiates are an imported drug. The South tried to grow opium or grow the opium poppy, but found that whatever the combination, either their species of plant or the combination, the thing about the soil, it just didn't have much potency. <clears throat> Some of you may know that as they've tried to grow artemisinin, in this, the latest popular malaria drug, <coughs> which is a, a plant, it, something about, I forget, the iron in the soil or something makes a difference in its potency. Well, this was true with opium. Um, quinine was a key drug in the war. There was a lot of malaria in the war. I could talk more about that. Um, and some people have said, well, the quinine leaked through. The Confederates would capture supply wagons. Yes, <clears throat> they would smuggle it in. Yes, but the Confederate hospital books that record the drugs they had, they had almost none. And so some of it got through. It probably, you know, here and there, there were pockets, but it, it was a major problem. Um, and the shortages got worse as the war went on. Um, I like cartoons. For one thing, they break up all the, the words. Um, but also because I think cartoons show us what everybody knew. Because you can't do a cartoon. It's not funny if everybody 
doesn't know that do that's Donald Trump with the hair curl sticking out way in front. You know, it just reflects common knowledge. So this is Harper's Weekly already in January 1862. And you can see a few things. These are supposed to be Confederate pickets. Now, granted, this is a northern view, but look how thin they are. They're the... It, perhaps it's a caricature, but still, they're showing them thin, pretty ragged. This was the not your glorious Johnny Reb that you might think. Um, <clears throat> and they're saying how cold it is in January in West Virginia. Yes, and I'm just getting another shake of that agar, ague being an old-fashioned name for malaria. And no quinine in the Federacy. <clears throat> First big at worse, you still got them blue devils after me. Now... I don't know how well this joke's going to work here, but <laughs> people down south would understand a reference. So I said that not many people know Coach K was active in the Civil War, but um, they, a few people, I guess people got it. We have a, for those who don't get it, there's a bat, we have a basketball team, and they're kind of proud of themselves at Duke. Anyway, but not a drop of whiskey. Blue Devils was an old word for delirium tremens, as you can probably tell from the, um, uh, context here. So I wish I was home. So the, um, and there's other cartoons that show people whining about not having quinine and how necessary it was. So I think it was real and it made a difference. Now, <clears throat> here you want statistics. I want statistics. I'm dying for statistics. So if they didn't have any quinine, were they dying at higher rates? Now, <clears throat> one of the issues is whether we're talking falciparum malaria or vivax malaria. One estimate of untreated vivax malaria mortality is three to five percent. Falciparum malaria, depending on how naive the person is when they get it, 30 percent, 35 percent. Kathy, you happy with that? Okay, okay. Other ID people. Um, so it depends. And falciparum is a deep south, South Carolina disease. Much of the, of the malaria in Virginia, particularly the James River Peninsula, was vivax. Um, so Chimborazo Hospital, the huge hospital in Richmond, Confederate hospital, had a mortality rate for malaria of 6.2 percent. Whereas the union case mortality um, <clears throat> overall was 0.7%, and it was probably much lower because <clears throat> if somebody dies of a disease, it gets reported. If somebody just has a disease, so you're trying to get case mortality, they might not bother to write it down. So I think that could skew these numbers. Um, but anyway, it does seem from what statistics we have that the South was not effective and was not doing well at treating malaria. Now, let's get on to surgery. Everybody's favorite Civil War topic. You may have, if you've seen Ken Burns' Civil War, he has that lovely photograph of the pile of limbs. This is a watercolor sketch from a, a guy who did watercolor sketches during the war, and what he's drawing is his own leg amputation. So, obviously, he's not standing over here, but he's imagining what it looked like, and it's a fairly good depiction, I think, this is a little hard to tell. This is the bloody pants leg, and the hole is his leg. So it gives you some sense. The, um, and, you know, you can see an awful lot of Civil War medicine in this picture. They're wearing street clothes. No scrubs here. This is pre-concepts of antisepsis or asepsis. Um, what's going on here? Ether or chloroform, probably chloroform, so it's easier to carry. And this is a field hospital situation. So yes, they had anesthesia. He was very grateful, I'm sure. He, the patient, is still wearing his uniform. Um, 
This guy is holding the saw in his bare hands. They're operating barehanded. And obviously, they've been doing quite a business this morning with the pile under the table. Um, they, so a lot of times, the surgery was done in, you know, do 10, 20 a day for a particular doctors. <clears throat> and the reason was they knew they had so little time to get it done. So they get his leg off, and he survives. Now what's going to make a difference in whether he survives the next two weeks? Well, he's not going to get antibiotics. There was no antisepsis. <coughs> and I've already talked about rapid field evacuation. I think surgeons learn their job pretty quickly. So you could argue about the northern surgeons better trained. <clears throat> but once you've spent a day cutting off legs, I think you know how to cut off a leg. I mean, it's you're probably all familiar with you get good at what you do. But don't ask me to put in a central line. I passed it, you know, when you had to get it all checked off and put in three or whatnot. That's about how many I put in. But, you know, you learn what you do every day. Um, <coughs> but post-op care becomes critical, which pushes you to think about what's going on in this so-called hygienic hospital I've been talking about. Now, this is what a Civil War hospital looked like at its best. <coughs> Sorry. Stupid cough. Uh, what? I'm fine. Yeah, I've got what I've got. I don't have any. Why is that? Oh, there's the light. Yeah, but it's not worth it much. All right, so we have the so-called pavilion system. And when I was at the Brigham in the late 80s, we still had pavilions coming off the main hallway. I see a few nods. Other people familiar with this idea. But it starts in the Civil War, and what they did is put up these little sheds. I don't know, about the width of a double-wide trailer and twice as long. Um, built quickly, and there's air between them, and they're really hot on ventilation and air. <coughs> now, the other thing you can see, although this slide is not as sharp, perhaps, as one might like, these are tents. And over here, these are tents. This is Satterley Hospital in Philadelphia. They could go from whatever their fixed beds were, 4,500, something like that, to 6,000. And they had to, because they'd get uh, a telegram from Gettysburg saying, a thousand wounded will be there tomorrow. <laughs> now, Duke Hospital has trouble handling four or five extra cases that come in. You know, there's no beds, there's no nurses. They, they, the idea of a hospital being able to turn on a dime and take a thousand patients boggles the mind. But that's what they did, and one of the ways they did it was tents. And you could also put your smallpox cases, isolate them in tents, or if you have a hospital gangrene outbreak, they said they'd put them under canvas. They'd move those men out and put them in tents. So huge hospitals with fresh air and cleanliness as the key, um, one of the key aspects of care. Now, <clears throat> this slide illustrates much of what was the best about healthcare in the North. Um, <clears throat> it is actually a glorification of some of the women who worked in Northern hospitals and through the mechanism of something called the United States Sanitary Commission, which was a Red Cross-like organization. In fact, the USSC was one of the models for the real Red Cross as they were formulating it in the mid-1860s. So that brought women into the hospitals and onto the battlefields. You see some nuns up there in the right upper corner. Um, there were just, there were a lot of women there. Now, why does this matter? The... I would call your attention to some things going on in this bed scene. So she's reading to him. She's also looking at him. 
So if things start going badly with him, she can get somebody. Um, there's a, a bowl here with a sponge to wash the patient. Um, there's some tea. There's probably a little medicine bottle. Um, he has bedding. He's wearing pajamas. Now, all of this may seem trivial, but the, the first idea is that the guys would go in the hospital wearing their uniform they just got operated in, and they'd keep wearing that. And somebody pointed out that it'd be better if they had clean hospital clothes and the, you know, the origin of those odd pajamas, they, at least they used to wear in VA hospitals, comes out of this, the government uh, top and bottoms uh, to wear in the hospital. The, um, so you have a hospital with somebody paying attention. Now this may seem kind of obvious, but think about how many times you've gone into a patient's room, if that's something you do in hospital, and the lunch tray is sitting there on the table, on the bedside table, the patient's asleep or not paying attention or just not whatever. The food is there, but if somebody doesn't poke that food into the patient's mouth, the patient's not going to eat it. And in fact, the tray will probably get taken away pretty soon. And they, if they're if they're lazy, they'll just record the eyes and O's as if the patient ate it. But I'm sure that never happens in the Dartmouth hospitals. They, so getting food into ill people can take manually poking spoons in their mouth. One of the things I looked up is when was the straw invented, the drinking straw? <clears throat> and uh, and it's not until the 1880s by the Dixie Cup people. Both invented the drinking straw and invented the, the Dixie Cup. Well, just getting water into the guy's mouth. There's no IV pole here, you see. Anything goes in is going in his mouth, or maybe up his butt if they can't get things into because they did that sometimes too. Um, but there's no IV to get fluids in. So the simple things, fluids, fluids and nutrition depends on somebody paying attention and somebody caring. Now, the most common disease in the American Civil War, want to vote, anybody? Number one disease on the list of... Pneumonia is a vote. Typhoid, okay. She's closer. Anybody else? Dysentery, I heard the whisper. So broadly, diarrhea, dysentery. Dysentery is diarrhea with blood in it and more cramping. I mean, it was a very a fluid, as it were, um, disease. <laughs> I just made that up. That's pretty good. I'll use that again. Um, so you imagine this guy, and he's had his leg cut off, like on that table, and he also has, as a third of them did, some sort of diarrheal illness. Now, poop on an open wound is not a great idea, and having somebody to wash the patient, to clean the patient, to move the sheets out and put new sheets down, all these things, or just your basic bed sore, these guys are heavily immobile with their various wounds. Somebody to push them up on one side and tuck the pillow under so they're on their side. All these things are low-tech but <clears throat> key to what we would now call nursing, although talking about what nursing was in the Civil War gets into questions of who's a professional and who's doing what any woman would have known to do at home. And that's where health care had happened. And the real challenge in the war is how to bring the kind of health care that women knew how to do into an institutional setting like this. And... One of the ways to do it is through organizations like the Sanitary Commission or the Nursing Corps, much more effectively done in the North than the South. 
One of the things that man is doing in that bed is resting. And that may seem also kind of, duh, yeah, well, he's sick, he's resting. But you have to have doctors that let men rest. And one of the problems with U.S. colored troops, and it's on a later slide, but I'll talk about it now, is they've been imbued with the idea from Southern rhetoric that the slaves don't work, they're lazy, they malinger, and you just have to be tough with them. So if they say to their officer, you know, I'm sick, I have a fever, I'm weak, and the officer will say, get in, you know, get in line, go do the work you're supposed to be doing. And often the black troops were given so-called sort of engineering work, digging trenches or building uh, battlements. So just having somebody believe you that you're really sick and letting you have a day off of rest was important, depended on sympathetic officers, sympathetic doctors. In the South, increasingly, they, were, they ran out of men in 1864. In March 1864, the recruiting sergeant for Robert E. Lee said, there's not any more. I have gotten you every possible able-bodied male to go into the Army. That's it. Maybe a few more will get old enough, but we've already you know, gone down to 14 and 13 in some cases. So the manpower shortage in the Confederacy was desperate. So any man who said, I'm sick, the response is likely to be, you're not sick enough. Um, we need you. We need, we need you out of the hospital as quick as we can get you. So <clears throat> again, the ability to rest and recover was at a premium. We're going to talk about food in detail in a minute. We'll come back to that. Cleanliness was pushed and valued highly. They were into disinfectants, cleaning the floors, keeping the sheets clean, all that sort of thing, particularly in Union hospitals. In Confederate hospitals, they didn't have the chemicals. They didn't know they were killing germs. They were killing smells, but it amounted to the same thing. Um, they didn't have as many disinfectants. They didn't have as many sheets to use. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, and the ability to keep people clean was harder. And then finally, again, the social network concept of marshalling indignation from home or marshalling food from home. The Sanitary Commission was told, I think it's the spring of 1863, Grants in Middle Tennessee. Help me out, Bob. I'm the right. Yeah, okay, thank you. He's, this is our local Civil War, Chair of the History Department, Civil War Strategy. Um, and they were getting scurvy. They'd exhausted the food supplies in Middle Tennessee. And the word went out to the Sanitary Commission Center in Chicago, Grant's Army needs foods that fight scurvy, so-called anti-scorbutics. Now, you might, what, what food do you think they gathered in the upper Midwest to feed Grant's Army that had vitamin C? Not lemons and limes. Sorry? Apples, some. Berries, okay. The lowly potato um, has, I don't know, 10 per, has a good bit of vitamin C. People don't know that. But the nice thing about the potato is, of course, you can put it in bags. It'll store for months at a time. Onions also have vitamin C. And so they just sent out the word. They telegraphed, and there's a nice long list in one Sanitary Commission woman's memoir of all the towns that they said, send us food, and the wagons started coming in. They put them on trains. They put them on boats. They sent them down the Mississippi River, across the Cumberland River, to Grant's Army in Tennessee. And within a month, the scurvy was gone. That's a social network. That's social capital. The South had none of that 
in, in the same organized way, and certainly the black troops didn't. Um, so let's see. Da, 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 da. The, most of this I've said, but one thing about the southern hospitals is they were staffed by slaves. So imagine if you are a slave and your job is to take care of a patient whose goal in life is to keep you a slave. Now, probably there was little overt cruelty, but there's hardly likely to be the kind of dedication that northern volunteer white women gave to northern troops. Um, and uh, so I said all that. Now, why was the South so hungry? A couple of reasons. First of all, the much of the fighting was in Virginia, and the farms were fairly quickly destroyed because of all the back and forth of battles, eating the local food supply. <clears throat> it was just consumed. Second, the money was of shrinking value. So um, we know that, for example, farmers in North Carolina would rather smuggle their food across Pamlico Sound to the Union lines where they got real money than sell it to Confederates, particularly after 1863. Um, and men who are in hospitals can't go out and forage and steal food like the men who are in camp could do. There's reports of how much food the men in, in Richmond hospitals were getting. It comes to 700 or 800 calories a day. Um, often uh, some diet of field peas, which are sort of like black-eyed peas, and cornbread. <clears throat> so, and not enough of that. And this is a totally disgusting slide, which may be the one you remember the most from this lecture. Um, it's a recipe for broiled rat um, that the men in uh, Richmond hospitals, if they could catch one, they would splay it and cook it, uh, and that it tasted rather like canvas-backed ducks and better than squirrel. Now, you have to realize these are southern, rural guys. Eat squirrel, eat possum, eat a rat. It's all the same. But it's a sign they were not getting enough food. In Philadelphia, at Satterley Hospital, they shot rats for entertainment, but they didn't eat them. Um, most of southern agriculture pre-war had been to commodity crops, tobacco, cotton, sugar, rice for export. They imported food from the Midwest. And when that's cut off by the blockade, um, you get shortages. <coughs> Farms are also ravaged by war. Uh, this happens to be North Georgia and Union troops. But um, you only go through a farm once to clear out the farm animals, and they're gone. They can't reproduce. The, that's a male cow, obviously. But a female cow that's taken is not going to produce any more milk. The chickens that are taken are not going to produce any more eggs for the local inhabitants. So the destruction of the war, which was obviously predominantly Southern. So what difference did it make? We have, we don't have a whole lot of data in Southern hospitals about outcomes in 64, 65. We do have this quotation from Southern Dr. Joseph Jones talking about secondary hemorrhage. And that might not be so obvious to you, but imagine a wound that has healed and opens again, be it an amputation stump or any other kind of wound. And it opens again because the body is no longer able to maintain the collagen that has kept that scar closed, and that's because of lack of vitamin C. So the, um, the, this sort of evidence of vitamin C and wound healing became of daily, at times almost hourly, occurrence in the hospitals. Um, the other things, the South was short of everything, and one of the most poignant descriptions I read was a doctor in a hospital in Virginia who was yelled at because he was wrapping dead men in sheets to bury them. Now, their uniforms, of course, were called back to central command. They needed, the South couldn't make cloth. They could grow the cotton, but they couldn't make cloth. And so 
sheets, everything that was finished product, um, a fabric, was in short supply. So they needed those sheets. They should bury the men naked, which, of course, is enormously, if you've read Drew Faust's book about ways of death and rituals of death, just enormously awful to people. Um, they were told to go out in the woods and gather this herb or that herb, but first of all, their wagon had a broken wheel. They couldn't get to the woods. They didn't have any glass bottles to make tinctures in. They had no stoppers if they had glass bottles. They were told to build hospitals in a certain way. They didn't have wood. They didn't have canvas. They didn't have nails. And above everything else, they lacked the labor to do these things that were easily done in the North. They actually conscripted slaves to do work for the Confederate Army, and various people fought over them, including hospital guys. So for black troops, you'd think, well, certainly they had enough food, they had all this wealth, the Union, but they lacked the social capital. People were not so focused on feeding them or caring about them. They had no constituency. So we know they were never fed enough. And um, one chapter in my book on the black troops is about scurvy outbreaks in Virginia in 1864-65 and then a horrid outbreak in Texas. Um, in the summer of 1865, the only reason we know anything about it is that some of those men got sent to New Orleans and some of the sanitary commission doctors saw them. And they were mad at the current Surgeon General, so they wanted to make a stink, and they did. Um, the docs in Texas, these docs who couldn't get promoted elsewhere, so ended up in the colored troops as their doctors, um, tended to take the money they were supposed to use to feed the troops, buy their own things they wanted to buy with it. Um, and when the men were dying of scurvy, they called it diarrhea and dysentery. And indeed, scurvy uh, takes away the ability of the intestinal wall to rejuvenate as any place else, you know, this constant healing. And they did die of diarrhea, but what they really died of was scurvy. Um, so, but the men in question didn't, were not able to get attention to the abuse. So in summary, statistics a week, I guess you got that point. There was available health care that made a difference in the Civil War. The key factors were food, food and more food, um, attention, cleanliness, some drugs. Um, many of the Confederate soldier deficits are tied directly to the war situation. We could, if you're interested in that, there's a couple of chapters in my book, Marrow of Tragedy, that talk about that. Um, oh, Kathy said she liked the title, Marrow of Tragedy. Um, when it went for sale on Amazon, and Amazon wants to suggest similar titles, they came up with a variety of, you know, different books on Civil War medicine, but they also put marrowbone dog biscuits as a suggested purchase. <laughs> I bought some right away, had it on my desk to explain to people. Um, but for black troops, the deficits, and I think maybe this is a take-home message as we try to deal with um, health, social terms of health today, the deficits were mostly due to willful neglect from the Union Army, um, coupled with very weak bodies on entry. And I just wanted to get some faces here. This is a famous photograph of two members of black troops. I think they look pretty scared and clueless and, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? And brave. Um, but I would draw this conclusion that instead of seeing the disease mortality of black soldiers in the Civil War as an indictment of their treatment by the Union, which it was, most contemporary observers concluded the black man was intrinsically weaker than the white man. This argument presaged assumptions about racial degeneration that would follow later in the century. In other words, it was their own fault or they were different, not that white people treated them badly. 
So my usual list of thanks. Thanks to Dartmouth for inviting me and to all these people for supporting the work as we've gone along. And that gives us an extra five minutes for questions. So thank you. Do you want me to just field? I don't know who. Field some questions. Anyone have some comments or thoughts? All right. It was an absolutely brilliant talk. And just to remind the audience, I'm probably one of the oldest people in the city here. In the mid 1950s, when I was a resident, I was assigned to a tuberculosis hospital. Mm -hmm. And it was just the beginning of the antibiotic era. And in fact, the treatment of tuberculosis was food and nutrition. Food and rest. So we're not that far away from nutrition. True. To see what happened when there was no nutrition century before, it's unbelievable. It's a great talk. Well, one of, one of the things I point out to medical students <clears throat> that, you know, we may be coming to a point where we don't have antibiotics anymore. So you better pay attention. <laughs> you know, it's not worth the drug company's time to make new ones and the, the rapidly evolving resistance. So, um, <clears throat> but I think it's also true now when we look at who doesn't, if, if nothing else that HIV's taught us, that if the body doesn't have an immune system, no amount of antibiotics is going to cure a disease that we got so used to thinking the drugs did it, but it's obviously a partnership of aiding the immune system. And there are lots of things that healing can do to the immune system that has nothing to do with antibiotics. So, yes, sir. Uh, uh, one of the origins of the current uh, scholarship on social determinants is Michael Marmot's interpretation of the second Whitehall study, which he popularized in the status syndrome. And um, the, the, the the bottom line is that um, income wasn't the source of the gradient in health among civil servants um, in the UK. It was their autonomy. So two people who had the same income, but one was chained to the desk because they were the security guard, and the other uh, sorted the mail and could do what they wanted much of the day when the job was done, um, had dramatically different health. It's hard to think of a group that had less autonomy. Had less autonomy or status, yes. And I'm wondering if there are any, any, um, any variables other than the obvious fact that, that they were slaves who were conscripted in many cases um, that would allow you to explore that. Um, I'm not entirely sure where you're going with that, but I am reminded of... Um, the research on um, establishing status hierarchies in the, the great apes and how the cortisol levels and such like change in body uh, types. The, um, <clears throat> there's a lovely book, Why Don't Zebras Get Ulcers, that some of you may know. Um, and another, another book by a Harvard historian named Swaim, Daniel Swaim maybe, um, that talks about how if you want to, if you're a, in a, the Middle Ages when things are so chaotic and you want to hold on to power, one of the ways to do that as a powerful man who has control of arms and horses and whatnot is to just randomly brutalize villages. And so instead of, you know, making deliberate efforts to find guilty and punish them, just go in and burn down a few houses every now and then. And it creates a subordinate and fearful populace and his and the, this other concept from evolutionary medicine, of which I have the loosest possible grasp of, is that the bodies change in a subversive situation in terms of 
stress response and catecholamines and cortisol and, and such like, but also in a way that lowers immune response. Now, that's totally vague, and if anybody has more detail on that, I'd love to hear it. But I think that's some of what you're getting at, that um, when you feel you have the power to do something, even if it's just to write home to your wife and tell her to do something, to try to help. Confederates in the hospitals in Richmond, I didn't get into this, would write home, particularly to relatives in North Carolina, saying, bring food, not just to bring food to feed me, but you know, gather whatever you can from the farm, get up here and sell it. You can get $2 for a possum. You know, the, the food supply was so, the food prices were so high um, that they tried to intervene that way. Well, the, the black troops could do none of that. Uh, so, yes? I have a question that has to do with PTSD. Okay. So that's a modern construct. It is. You know, there are um, echoes of it, like Battleshock in World War I. Sure. Sure. And um, I was along the lines of Al's question about agency, wondering if um, subsequent accounts of people who fell into one of the three categories you talked about had any flavor of PTSD, could um, could um, sort of a, the, the loss of a sense of mission and meaning in the war for, for instance, a southern combatant whose underlying philosophy is repudiated by history mm -hmm. have affected in some way the way the combatants understood what they went through and, and sort of PTSD-like phenomena happening. Mm. I guess I would look a couple of places. One is the fact that increasingly southern troops deserted. Um, the desertion rates start skyrocketing in 63, 64. Oh, is, that, is that true? So it's, it's like when, when they were glorifying the lost cause after the war and creating this myth, they were attempts to try to, to squash that, saying, you know, our brave boys fought on to the end. Well, our brave boys in the South went home whenever they could, uh, see Cold Mountain, um, and, and this attempt to get away from a hopeless situation. So there's some expression of agency in that. There's also quite a bit of information about um, veterans, southern veterans in mental hospitals after the war, um, and, and probably also in the Union. I haven't seen studies there. The one I've seen is about a Virginia mental hospital. Some of that was probably what we would know as PTSD. Some of it, mental changes from brain trauma um, and the epilepsy that, that cranial trauma would have brought in its way. Um, some of it secondary to syphilis, which... Uh, was a major cause of putting people in mental hospitals before uh, treatment with penicillin. So the, you see some of it. Uh, it's difficult to track it because being mentally ill in relation to the war is a, it's not a glorious thing to have, and so people are not going to be excited about writing it down or remembering that uh, old Joe came home from the war and was never the same again and went crazy is not part of this glorious story of what happened in our great national war. So I think it must have been there. Um, how much you can measure it, I don't know. Yes, sir? We worry nowadays a lot about tiny little wounds and tetanus. What's the incident or the story of tetanus during the Civil War? There was quite a bit of discussion about it, um, the, about how to treat it. There, the, 
there was a medical society in Richmond, actually, that was sort of formed by the Surgeon General and from various doctors who were there with all the hospitals and regiments around Richmond. And they had a whole, if you will, colloquium on the question of tetanus and how to treat it. Um, <clears throat> they had little idea of draining um, a wound, perhaps, or opening a wound to make it drain better. Um, they certainly saw tetanus, they, but not as much as you might expect, which might make you think a couple of things. The wounds were so wide open, they weren't getting your classic puncture nail or nail puncture with a closed up, uh, quick closure of the hole so that it, it grows inside. Um, or <clears throat> that they had perhaps so much more exposure to these organisms in the soil from being very young children that either they died of it already or they acquired some sort of immunological power against it. Now, I just made that up. I have no idea if that makes sense. But it seems to me so many other diseases, if you meet them in childhood, you know, that, that can be true. I don't know. Um, but yes, it was a problem, but not a huge problem. Yes? McClellan's army during the early part of the war had a very, um, in relation to the size of his army, was actually had a quite good survival ratio. Um, one of the reasons because he didn't fight. I'm trying, yeah. But the other was because he had actually embedded the first uh, general to embed uh, surgeons into the battlefield, uh, which is itself followed suit. I wonder if that had much of an impact on it as well, and if the skill sets of the Union versus Confederate doctors were different in that regard. The, so McClellan, um, George McClellan was the Union commander on the peninsula uh, in the fall, spring, summer of 1862. Um, <clears throat> and one of the, the, when I had that line about rapid field evacuation, um, this was <clears throat> one of the, the organizational issues that becomes very important in the war, is how do you get the wounded off the battlefield, particularly while the battle is still going on. Um, and one of the things that commanders figured out is that if you have three soldiers who are friends and one of them is hurt, the other two are going to carry their friend off the battlefield and maybe take quite a while doing it to get their friend all the way back where it's safe and stay with him and be sure he's okay. And in the meantime, they're not out in there getting shot at. So one practical re reason to get stretcher carriers and such like organized is to keep the men fighting and not taking men off the field, but they set up what was called an ambulance system. It's not that the ambulance, the vehicle, or the stretcher, but, but a system of field evacuation of an immediate first aid station where particularly they would control bleeding, and then sending the men further back, um, and hopefully the first aid station is out, is behind a big rock or something, so it's out of the battle line. Um, the North was better at that. They had again, just with material goods, wagons and cloth and more people to serve as these, these evacuation uh, types than the South had, um, and more discipline. One of the complaints about the Southern ambulance, actual the physical ambulances around Richmond is that when they weren't in battle, the guys were using them for transport and they'd take their girls for a ride in the ambulance and you know damage the wheels and do things like that. So. Um, it's, the surgeons were with the regiments, but how they were deployed on the day of the battle evolved over time. So by the summer of 1863, the Union at least had an official plan 
And people have argued about, well, was it really implemented here, implemented there? Um, but yes, that probably did make a difference. Yes. Oh. I was going to ask, um, and this is somewhat tangential, but to the extent that those, those of us who spend time in, um, in inner city hospitals mm -hmm. in the current modern era, to what extent do you think that these, that these themes have really totally been eliminated uh, in terms of social disparity? A lot of what you're talking about still exists. Oh, sure. And, and that is one of sort of the points is that <clears throat> having someone to take care of you when you're sick, and that can include getting you to the doctor, getting you to the medicine, um, easy to see the elderly perhaps um, can fall into the role of the helpless soldier here in imaginings because of various disabilities, perhaps more than young people uh, in today's market, but uh, somebody to get you food, put food in your mouth, keep you clean, all these sorts of things. Um, I think we all see that as a, uh, when in touch with these populations, a, a deficit in that regard. Okay. Uh, Kathy, one last question. Yeah, I guess I just wanted to say, I don't think a tangential question at all, that this, um, your talk so beautifully illustrated the way sometimes when we're up too close to something, it's hard to see. And by using the tools of history and humanities, you can step back and sometimes recognize what we're missing by recognizing the patterns. And mm. I think it gives us some humility that maybe we don't always have. So I just want to thank you and also to say that Margaret has graciously agreed to meet with interested students. And by that, I would include all of you. So I want to recommend again a visit to the Mutter Museum if you've never been there. I'd recommend also the Hunterian Museum in London if you're interested in the history of medicine and, uh, and historical changes and surgery because of John Hunter's work and, and the issue of becoming from barber surgery to actual understanding the principles of surgery 200 and some odd years ago. And I would recommend The Knife Man as a read about Hunter, <laughs> and I would recommend Margaret's books because these are amazing uh, views of the history that have brought us really to what we think about today. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Today. Enjoyed it. Wow.